All right, can I invite you to turn to your, uh, return to your seats? And as you do, if you could pull out your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible with you, then you can see it on screen behind me. And if you're watching this online, I uh, encourage you right now to get your Bible open to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be for the next three weeks, plus at the State Theater, Galatians chapter 4. We're going to really do a deep dive into Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. And each week, we're going to go a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper and, um, and I trust that we will have a great preparation for Christmas this year, the Advent season, which we are beginning even this weekend. So Galatians chapter 4, if you could stand with me and let's read this together. I'm going to read it if you want to follow it along, either on the screen or in your own Bible. Galatians chapter 4, here we go, verse 1. And it goes like this, and Paul's in the middle of a conversation in his letter. He goes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. We love our Advent series called The Greatest Christmas Family. And what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is looking at the Father who sends, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit of God who dwells. And then we're going to end at the State Theater with an invitation to all who have not yet entered that family. And we would encourage you to bring your friends and bring those who do not yet know the beauty of the Christmas message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and invite them to the State Theater where they're going to get the, the entire summary of this series on that evening. So we would encourage you to do that. You know, I want to be very uh, upfront and very honest with you. You know, I really do realize not all of us come from families with good earthly fathers. You know, my father was really good in a lot of different ways, but not good in every way. And one of the ways that he was not so good was in kindness, in gentleness, in mercy, and love. He was a godly man, started the church I grew up in, very active as an elder, but not a kind man. I one time saw him in anger push my mother across the room and into the couch. I did not speak to him for two weeks. It's the only time I ever saw him do that. But I was the recipient of a lot of his anger. And my mother, with the infamous words, you wait till your father gets home. And I remember one occasion, all I had done was left my bicycle in the driveway, at the bottom of the driveway. And my mother was very upset at me. And she says, wait till your father gets home, which means she's going to tell my dad. And I was surely going to get the belt. And so I went into my room and I put on every single pair of underwear I owned underneath my jeans. My rear end was sticking out probably about six inches. And when my dad came home, sure enough, it was a walk back to his bedroom. 
a belt out of his closet and it was take your pants down to your ankle and bend over. And when he saw all the underwear, he started laughing. That was the only time I ever got out of a whipping. And it did not work more than once. But you know, I know not everybody comes from families with really good earthly fathers. And some of us need to be able to have the grace of God correct then in our minds what the heavenly father really is like. And the aim today is to really look at the heavenly father that loves us more than we will probably even after millions of years into eternity still struggle to understand. You know, J.I. Packer, who wrote a, uh, a very famous best-selling theological manual book, he wrote this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayer and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. I'm going to say that last part again, and I really want you to hear this, and I want this to try to get down into your heart. And the only way it goes from your mind to your heart is if it goes there by faith and trust and obedience. Father is the Christian name for God. That's an amazing statement, and I believe he's right. Commentary writer Tony Merida writes, the doctrine of adoption, the teaching of adoption is at the heart of the gospel. Adoption was never plan B. It has always been plan A. It existed before the world existed. Well, today is the first of four Advent sermons called The, Christ the Greatest Christmas Family. And each week we're going to look at this passage in Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7. And today we're going to look at the Heavenly Father's great plan of adoption. I've got three points for you, and I'm going to ask you to really try to listen and pay attention and learn to the very best of your ability, and let's see what we can learn and how it can impact our lives. Number one, first point, Christmas is the celebration that our Heavenly Father had a plan. It's the celebration that our Heavenly Father had a plan. Now recall, if you would... That in the original Bible, and the original manuscripts, and, well, let's just get specific to the letter to the churches in Galatia. Look at your Bible for a moment while I tell you this. There were no chapter breaks. Chapter breaks, like we're in chapter 4, verse 1. There were no verse 1, verse 2, no chapter breaks in the original manuscripts. These have been put in by those who have compiled the Bible so that Pastors can say, hey, open up your Bible to Galatians chapter 4. Or for when we study the Bible, we know where we left off and we could start again. But they're not part of the original. So when we get to verse 1, really what you need to know is that there's already a conversation going. Paul has already been writing and capturing his thoughts. And there's really not a break And he's been telling these believers in these churches in Galatia... Christians, you started out so well in your Christian walk, but now, now you're stumbling. 
Do you know why they're stumbling? It's because a group of Jewish people came into the church called the Judaizers, and they were trying to persuade the churches, the Christians, that if you want to really be saved, you've got to trust in Jesus, plus you've got to keep the law of Moses. So it's not just have faith in Jesus and you'd be saved. It's have faith in Jesus and keep the law of Moses. And Paul says, let me tell you about the law. Verse 23 of chapter 3. Can you look at that? Let me tell you about the law. Here's what the law does. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Do you know what that means that we were held captive under the law? Well, you know what? I'll give you an example where I think most of us, if you drive, you're going to resonate with this. You're going to get this. You're going to understand this. If you're driving your car and you're going down the road and up over a knoll or around a curve, there's a police officer with a radar gun pointed at you. It doesn't matter if you're doing the speed limit or not. You automatically take your foot off the gas and you pump the brake. That's the law. The police officer represents the law. He has the authority of the law. And that law restrains evil. Well, the law of God, the law of Moses, was perfect. It revived the soul. But it could not save anybody. Nobody was saved by keeping the law. It actually imprisoned you. It put you into captivity, meaning that God's purpose for the law was to show you the holy perfection of God and then your own sinfulness, and it was to help you put the brakes on sin, to be able to restrain sin. That's why the law of God was given to us. And if you obey it, you have blessings from God. If you do not obey it, you have consequences. And then you get to chapter 4, and Paul explains the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, what on earth is Paul talking about? I'm going to break this down I think pretty simply. Let me take you back to Rome, first century. You need to understand some customs. Until a son of a Roman father underwent a ceremony around 17 to 18 years old called liberalia. Everybody say liberalia. Until he had his ceremony called liberalia, where the son would receive a new toga, as a mark of adulthood, then the father did not acknowledge the son as an adult, nor did he acknowledge him yet as an heir of all of his fortune. He's just a child. Until the ceremony of liberalia, he's just a child. And if he's a child, listen, he is no better off than a slave. In fact, he is subject to a household slave with no rights and little freedom. That's what it was like growing up as a Roman son of a father. Until you got to 17 or 18 and you went through the ceremony of liberalia, you were just a child. You had no rights. You had very little freedom. You were really no better off than a slave. You were not even considered the heir yet of your father's fortune. He's the future owner of his father's estate, 
But as a minor, he could make no claim. He had no right to it. Now, Paul's point is this, that before you put your faith in Jesus, before Jesus came, all of us were under the law. We were enslaved, verse 3, to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, before Jesus came, people were in bondage to whatever law or whatever religion they thought saved them. Now, I did a funeral this morning. A man who died at 87 years old, had three wives, a children from each one. It's a pretty difficult family situation. And I'm looking at the audience, and it was packed, and there was an overflow room where others were as well. And I'm speaking to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I said to them, if you believe that you can please God and arrange for your own salvation by doing more good things than bad things in your life, by trying to please God through doing the things that you think he wants you to do, if you think that's the way that you can be saved, then you don't know the gospel. You don't know the reason for Christmas. You don't know Jesus. You see, every religion, I hope you hear this, every single religion other than Christianity, and Christianity is a religion, it's a religion about a relationship, a relationship with God. But every religion other than Christianity, the very framework of how you are saved in their religion, you must do something. You must keep the code. You must obey the law. Now you bring in Christianity, and Christianity under the law says you cannot obey the law. You cannot keep the code. You cannot do enough good, and even the good you do when you compare it to the performance of God is not even good. There is no hope in your own effort. You see, before Christ came, people were in bondage to their law or their religion, to the Jewish people. To, they were enslaved to their hopes that by keeping the law of Moses, they would be saved. If you're a Gentile, then you would, you would pour out your libations, you would worship your God, and you thought you could be saved. When you're enslaved, you have to work for your salvation, you think, but yet there is no true salvation. You see, until adulthood, until that Roman child becomes an adult at the, at the ceremony of liberalia, that child was put under the care of guardians and managers. You see that in your text? There's a reason Paul uses those words. Those are slaves in the household of the father. And the slaves' jobs were actually to watch over the child, even discipline the child, teach the child, walk the child to school, educate the child, bring the child back home. See, that's the way the law of God worked. The law of God watched over the people of Israel. The law of God watched over people and kept them out of trouble or at least restrained sin. But the heavenly father set a date where he would terminate the law and he would make his sons and daughters know him by sending his son. 
You see, instead of the liberalia ceremony, it is faith that moves us out from under the law and into grace. The Heavenly Father had a plan before he created the universe, and it moves us to the very next point. So not only is Christmas the celebration that the Heavenly Father had a plan, it's the celebration, number two, that our Heavenly Father had perfect timing. Look at that timing in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, in other words, when it came time, the time that God had set before he created the universe, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, this is huge. A Jewish child became a son of the commandments, an adult, at the age of 13 at his bar mitzvah. A Jewish girl became a daughter of the commandments, an adult, at age 12 at her bat mitzvah. With, with Greeks, a boy became a man around 18 in a festival called Apatoria when his long hair, which he grew his whole childhood, it would be cut off and offered to the god Apollo, or Apollo rather. Roman fathers chose a date. It was always when the fathers chose the date for the ceremony of liberalia when a custom called toga virilis would occur, and that is the old toga of the child would be taken off and a brand new toga would be put, off, put on. And the sons, now watch this. Now, if you're younger here, listen to this. At the toga virilis, sons would bring all of their toys and daughters would bring all of her dolls and they would burn them to their gods as a symbol of leaving childhood and entering adulthood. And there the status of the young Roman child changed to that of a son. Changed from a child to a son, changed from being the legal future heir of his father's money to one who entered into a joint possession of all that the father owned. Now, this is what Paul is borrowing from. He tells us that the heavenly father, he's got an exact date. He's the one that chose it. It is perfect timing. And it's when he's going to bring his people out from under the law, out from the bondage to the law, out from his slavery to religiosity where you think you've got to earn your salvation. He's going to bring them out from this and he's going to bring him into his family, his sons. And the way that he's going to do it is he's going to send his son Jesus to be born into humanity, born under the law. Now we need to talk about that. What's it mean to be born under the law? It means that Jesus will have to keep the entire law, something that no one had ever done before. He would have to keep the entire law perfectly in our place because we could not do it. But if Jesus could not do it, there would be no salvation. If Jesus failed, then we would not be saved today. But Jesus did not fail. He kept the entire law of God perfectly. He did what we could not do. And look at verse 5. And therefore, he can redeem those who were under the law. He can bring us out of the religious background. He can bring us out of the enslavement to the principalities of this world or the principal things of this world. And anyone who comes to the heavenly father by faith 
is going to be redeemed by the Son, and their status will be changed legally to that of a child of the world, to that of a son of the Heavenly Father. They will have the adoption as sons, as it says in the text. Now, let me make this super clear. Everybody look at me for a moment. I'm going to really help, I hope, press this into your heart clearly. If you are here right now or if you're listening to this online and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then Colossians, the letter to the Colossians says that you are still in the domain of darkness. You are still imprisoned and held captive under the law. You are bound and enslaved by your sin. But the moment that you believe The moment that you entrust your life to Jesus, in that very moment, God transfers you. It's the Heavenly Father that does it. He transfers you from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the domain of Jesus, his son. You are now no longer imprisoned. You are no longer in the domain of this world. You are now brought into the family of God. You are adopted into the kingdom of son as brothers and sisters of Jesus and children, sons and daughters of the heavenly father. You see, Jesus said earlier in John chapter 1, verse 12, and you'll see it on the screen, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, friends, that leads us to our third and final point. Not only is Christmas a celebration of the plan of God and the timing of God, Christmas is a celebration that our Father, our Heavenly Father, adopted us into his family. Now, I would imagine, if I could just pause for a moment, that probably a lot of us have never viewed Christmas in this way before. I mean, we love the shepherd stories. We love the story of of Jesus born into humanity, and he's in a manger. And who wouldn't love that? That's an amazing story. It's one you should retell all the time. But this is a bit of a different version of Christmas in Galatians 4. But it's so powerful. You see, God always planned to redeem us and adopt us into his family. And he set a specific date when he would do that by sending his son to be born into humanity under the law. He would obey it fully. And now it takes us back to the first century Greek culture. Now, let me explain this. Parents adopted, Greek parents adopted children in their teens. Now, I want you to hear this. After, after they proved able to work well and worthy to carry on the family name. They didn't adopt them until the child proved it. Now look at the grace of God. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You weren't even alive, either was I. We had proved nothing. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So why does God adopt? He adopts according to the purpose of his will. Not if you manage to please him, not if you manage to do enough good things, not if you're a worthy enough person. In fact, you're likely not a worthy enough person and you've not done things well enough. In fact, I know that to be true. Not only for you, it's true for me because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is grace. This is love. You see, the point of God's redemptive mission in both the Old Testament and the New Testament was to adopt people into his family. Now, that ought to startle you because I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of you think the highest point, you've always believed the highest point of redemption is justification, where you are declared right with God. I'm gonna tell you something, that's the legal point of the gospel, but that's not the most glorious. The most glorious is adoption. In fact, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said adoption is the final aim and the ultimate end of redemption. There is nothing higher than this. It is the highest expression even of God's love. You want to know how to understand God's love. You want to know where you can see the most scintillating, perfect expression of it. It's in adoption. Now, again, some of you might argue that justification, God's forgiveness of our sins and restoring us to peace with him through Christ, that's the highest. No, it's not. It's the highest privilege of the gospel, one might think. But it does not in itself imply any deeper intimate relationship with God. While closeness and affection and generosity are at the heart of the scripture's teaching adoption. You know, I've counseled a lot of parents in our church and some outside of our church who have adopted children. Now, some of you have been adopted. And maybe some of you have adopted others. And I'll tell you what always comes out, and I've not seen an exception to this, and I've worked with a lot of people who are A, adopted, or B, have adopted others. What I have seen, and this is no secret, is that in the hearts of the adopted, there remains a question, am I truly lovable? Am I truly lovable? Why, if I am, would my parents give me away? And without realizing it, they often test the love of their adoptive parents, even wounding their adoptive parents, wondering if they truly are loved, afraid that that love is not secure. When will the rug be pulled out from under their feet? When will they be cast out of the family? There lingers into their hearts this suspicion, and it is only the gospel that can fully take it away. And what grief it brings to the adoptive parents who do not look at that child as anything but their full children. You know, it's no different for believers adopted into the family of God. This is singularly the greatest struggle that I know of in Christians. Because so many doubt the security and the goodness of their heavenly father. So he does something to help us in our struggle. Now watch this, and we're coming to the end of the message. 
Watch what Roman, or Galatians 4, verse 6 and 7 says. Everybody look. This is the most important thing I'm going to tell you so far. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Why did God send the son to redeem us? Why did God send the spirit? Now listen. To teach us to live as the sons and the daughters of the Heavenly Father. And we can't learn it without Him. As the Holy Spirit lives within a Christian by faith, He is working in us to assure us we are God's children. We have a vast inheritance ahead of us. We have help by the Spirit to long for the eternal world of glory where we will be together with God and His family forever. See, the Father chose to adopt us. He had the perfect time for it. And when that perfect time came, he sent his son to redeem us out of the enslavement to the elementary principles of the world where you think you've got to earn your God's approval. Jesus redeemed us. He, he did what we could not do. And the spirit of God was sent by the father to teach us who we are as the children of God. Now, this is why J.I. Packer said this, the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of adoption. You see, it's one thing for me to preach to you and explain the doctrine of adoption, but the Spirit of God must experientially unlock and explode the reality. You have a heavenly Father. He will never, ever leave you. He will never forsake you. He will persuade you, the Spirit of God will, that your Heavenly Father actually delights in you, that He desires your company. He can't get enough of your praying. He absolutely finds it a wonderful day when you come to commune with Him through His Word. The Spirit of God convinces us that when we sin, God is not going to hit the smite button. You don't have a frowny face on God. Yes, he's grieved, but yes, he's motivated to rescue you, not condemn you. You see, the Spirit of God wants you to believe that when you cry out to God, you're going to receive much more than you ever could imagine you would. You will have affection that you've never received from anyone. And he will cause you, the Spirit of God will, to cry, Abba, Father, and proclaim in joy, see how very much our Father loves us. Behold it. This is amazing is what the Greek word means there. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. See, the greatest Christmas family is the truth that the Heavenly Father has adopted into his family every single sinner that turned to him in faith, trusting that Jesus, his son, can redeem you and will redeem you, and then sending his spirit to teach you how to live as God's children. So as we celebrate this Christmas season, I want you to remember what Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 says. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive 
adoption as sons. Let me ask those who are going to serve the Lord's Supper if you can make your way down here. And Pastor Kyle will hand to you what you are going to pass out to everybody. This is for believers only. If you've not yet turned to God in faith, trusting in the death, burial, resurrection of the Son to save you and forgive you of your sins, then you, you need to let this pass by you. But let it motivate you. Why would you not believe why would you not trust? Heaven the Father loves you. He sent his son to redeem you. And he has sent the Spirit of God to teach you how to be his child. You know, let me tell you this. I want you to hold on to your focus on me, if you would. Let me get you ready for the Lord's Supper. And parents, I want you to be able to, to really impress this on your children. Go ahead and you can whisper these things into them. But I want to tell you, there are two measuring sticks for the work for the love of God and God's word did you know that there's two measuring sticks the cross and adoption and I want you to picture for a moment if you would a Christmas tree and underneath that Christmas tree are so many wrapped Christmas gifts they are beautifully wrapped and one of them is forgiveness of sins. And another one of those gifts under that tree is peace with God. Another one is eternal life. Another one is adoption into God's family. And they go on and on. And each of them is costly. Every one of those gifts are costly. And they were paid for by the death of Jesus, the Son of God. He provided the payment that you could have these gifts. And he provided it with his own life. Now, I want you to imagine this. Is everybody listening? Are you looking at me? Can you see those gifts under that tree? Can you see your name on it? Do you see your name written on those gifts? Because you can only unwrap them if you trust in Jesus, your Savior, and submit to him as your Lord. You see, Jesus, your Redeemer, has come. Now, I haven't mentioned this yet, even though it's a word in the text, and I'm going to end with this, and then we will pray, and then we will take the Lord's Supper. Do you know what it means to be redeemed? I mean, the word very simply means to be bought back. You know what it means to be redeemed? It means that Jesus made a payment in his death they covered the price of all of yours and my sins. And the moment that you turn to him in faith and trust, he will buy you back. He will take you out from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and he will transfer you into the kingdom of his son. The father does this. And the moment that you are transferred into the kingdom of the Son, you are adopted. You receive your adoption papers. You receive your newness in Christ. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he begins to live in you. And he begins to pulse his power. And that power is to open up your mind and change your desires and expand your understanding and give you new affections so that you love your heavenly Father and you love being his daughter and you love being his son. 
and you love all the other sons and daughters because they're your family. That's your eternal family. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you. That's the greatest Christmas family. As we get ready to participate in the Lord's Supper, I'm going to go ahead and grab a cup as well. Go ahead and separate those if you would. And I'm going to give you about a minute. Whether you're here in person or home or anywhere watching this, I'm going to give you a moment. And I want you to bring back to mind something you heard in this message that needs to stay with you. You'll know what it is because it had an exclamation point. It hit hard or it went deeper, or it's been echoing around. Whatever that is, that's what God wants you to know. I want you to take a minute. I just want you to think on that. And I want you to pray to God, your heavenly Father, and ask him to show you what you need to know from that. In about a minute, I'll call you back to this. If you have a cup in your hand right now, I trust that you are my brother and my sister in Christ. And I want to tell you that these are symbols that are pointing us to the only way to come into the family of God, through the body and the blood of Jesus. And as we eat these, you are declaring that God had a plan in mind the whole time. He had a perfect time when he was going to fulfill that plan. And that time came and he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, who would do what you could not do and what I could not do, and that is keep the law perfectly. And he was nailed to a cross and he died because death of a perfect man is the only antidote to pay for our sins. But he was raised back to life. When we eat this cracker, this bread, we are praising God. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you. Let's eat together. you're holding the cup and the cup has juice in it from the vine whether it's wine or grape juice it's from the vine 
And the Bible says it points as a symbol to the blood of Jesus. Oh, he couldn't just bleed as if he was cut and then it stanched or staunched its flow. He had to bleed to death. He had to die. He had to shed his blood to death. And this blood is the new covenant. You're no, you're no longer under the law. The law found its termination in Christ. Now you are in Christ. Now you are under a new covenant. Now you have the grace of God who will help you live what he desires. It's his power in you, in me, that helps us obey him. We drink with confidence and a toast to our Lord and Savior Jesus. Without the body and the blood of Jesus, no one comes into the family of God, but our, adjo- our adoption is secure because of the blood. Let's drink. Father, it is true. You are our Heavenly Father. And Lord, we are your sons and daughters by faith. We've been adopted. And you care for us. You take responsibility for us. And one of the ways that you care for us is that you sent your Spirit to dwell in our hearts, to teach us how to cry, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. When a child cries that to his father or her father, it is a cry of adoration, a a cry of trust, a cry of affection. Lord, would you teach us by your spirit how to have that adoration for you, that trust in you, that affection for you, so that our hearts could cry, Abba, Father. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom you sent to be our Redeemer, that we ask for this. Amen.